Welcome to the Unfair Advantage podcast, brought to you by the authors of the Business Book of the Year, The Unfair Advantage. This is the podcast for anyone who wants to understand the real forces that lead to success in life and in business. Authors and co-hosts Hassan Kuba and Ash Ali discuss entrepreneurship, self-awareness, and explore the journeys of their remarkable guests so they can understand what set them apart from the pack. Because behind every success story, there's an unfair advantage. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Unfair Advantage podcast. My name is Jamie Slevin, and I'm here with Hassan Kuba. I am not, you might notice, Ash Ali. Ash unfortunately couldn't be with us today. So I thought me and Hassan would have a conversation about some of the key themes in the book, and particularly self-awareness. But before any of that, Hassan, hey man, how's it going? I'm good, man. How are you doing, Jamie? I'm good. It's always a pleasure to come onto the podcast and pick your brains, especially around the main themes of the book. Because obviously the book's done relatively, I say relatively well, it won the Business Book of the Year Award, which we sometimes like to mention here on the podcast. (laughs) The thing I wanted to really pick you up on today was self-awareness. For just a little bit of context, when I read the book, self-awareness had two basically main forms. The first was knowing about what you wanted to do and being self-aware around what got you going. And by got you going, I mean motivated, inspired and all of those synonyms. And the second was about knowing your personality and your unfair advantages so that you could leverage them. And I guess right off the bat, is that how you think about self-awareness in business? It is. And self-awareness is one of those things. And this is something that I'm on a constant journey of. And I've got an executive coach right now. I've got a health coach at the moment helping me lose some weight. And I'm like learning so much about myself. And I really don't think age 20 or 22 or 24, I really knew myself very well, broadly speaking. What motivates you is a big self-awareness factor. It's your why and also your personality type. I think I used to always take those personality tests in a way that I wish that I was, not the person I am now. You know, they say that an author writes a book for himself (laughs) because it's like a message to yourself to remind yourself of what you need to know. And for me, I think I was far along the angle of thinking of self-improvement that were completely malleable. I did think that we're sort of a blank slate and that every advantage is accrued only based on experience and based on how much hard work you've put in. I didn't really acknowledge that there's such a thing as talent. I used to just think, oh, that's very self-limiting. If I think of myself as an introvert, well, I'm limiting myself to that. Rather than thinking that this is where I am now, almost like an audit. And that, yes, it is. It can can change. It can shift. But there are some fundamentals that it's not going to shift that drastically. So that's the personality side, and we got into that in the book as well. And then it's your unfair advantages, which it kind of becomes more and more external, the most internal being like what drives you. And then it becomes like your personality type and like your traits and what you're sort of naturally lean towards. And then your unfair advantages naturally comes from that, which also starts to include your circumstances, it includes your talents, your expertise, etc. And that's the interesting link. So even though your personality type, and we're talking loosely about personality types, I mean, for a little bit of context, right, there are a few main models. The ocean model is very popular these days. That's openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And when people talk about personality types, I think the resistance you ran into there is quite common. I have the same. I think, well, no, you know, I can work on this. I'm not pigeonholeable. You keep your personality tests away from me. And that's kind of the perception you go in as. You know, when I was about 15, I spent a lot of time on motivational YouTube. And I don't know if anyone else can relate to this. And the characteristics of motivational YouTube are guy working out. Yeah. 
inspirational music, narration slash film clips over the top. Yeah. And there's this paradigm you're in of hard work conquers all. And you're not yet at the, well, where am I already leveraged? Where am I already good? Where is it effective and efficient? And the resistance to personality types, I think, is quite common for that reason. But let's jump in because we have to call a spade a spade. It's not true that everyone is as good as easily at everything. And if you know that, you all of a sudden know where you need to delegate, improve, and basically where your blind spots are. Yeah, absolutely. Even when it comes to like things like intelligence. But I never even used to think of that. I used to think I'm better at school because my mom used to take me to the library when I was younger and I'm so grateful for that. You know, and I used to think that was the only reason. And I'm sure that played a role. But I think I am naturally quite good at the conceptual stuff. This is something that I just used to have almost like an extreme growth mindset. This whole idea of like a tabula rasa, as they say, a blank slate. Like everybody's born a blank slate. It's almost like nurture over nature. We're getting quite theoretical or philosophical, but just to say everybody has unfair advantages and it can come from your personality type. It can come from what you're drawn to and inclined towards, what you really enjoy doing what's easy to you but difficult for other people and it takes time and a lot of experimentation to figure that out i think yeah and while we are getting theoretical there is a very practical application warren buffett says that you need to have an area of competence and warren buffett says that his area of competence is very small it's with investing money and everything else he's not the man to go to now the reason why this is a very practical lesson is it's worth acknowledging what your natural or unfair advantages are such that you have an area of competence and you know how to delegate. Yeah, absolutely. And also, don't jump to conclusions based on what experiences you had at school or at university. One of the big realizations I've had in the last few months, working with an executive coach, for the first time I've got an executive coach and it's amazing, and his whole focus is the self-awareness stuff, right? Like a good coach helps you understand yourself and so therefore what works for you and what doesn't. One of the realizations I've had one of the insights, the identity shifts that I've had was writing the book and then having that published and then being introduced as an author or a writer and thinking, what? Like, I never have thought of myself as an author or a writer, but then obviously I am now, right? It's, that's it. I wrote a book, so I'm an author. But then the other thing was the label of creative. I never, ever thought of myself as creative when I was younger. I never did any kind of arts or crafts or design or anything like that. And I was kind of good at science and maths and i just thought okay so i must be that nerdy quantitative type who likes numbers and stuff and i just assumed i'm that even though i've not really been drawn towards spreadsheets i don't use them much now i'm not really that into numbers so that was interesting for me to make that shift recently and one of the things i was saying and you pointed out something interesting about that which is that there's two broad personality types just to make it a very crude model you're either a creative or you're a very organized person now, obviously, it doesn't mean you can't be creative and organized, but, you know, roughly speaking, a creative is the type that struggles with having a structure and a rigid routine. Like you can't have broad routines, like a morning routine or a way to get into your creative flow. And often that helps a lot. But to have a rigid one, you know, having every five minutes of the day scheduled and time boxed is like a creative's nightmare. A creative also changes his mind often. You might think like, oh, I'm going to do this one day. And then, oh, no, I'm going to change to this. And I'm going to, we come up with new ideas a lot. But an organized person loves to make lists and loves to schedule and loves to keep things on track. Whereas creative doesn't care, often late to things. And that's definitely me. So working with Ash, for example, who's an extreme creative type, 
I thought then therefore I must be the organized one. But then I've like realized oh, this isn't my strength. I'm like Ash, but just not as extreme in terms of my strengths or weaknesses. So you pointed out, Jamie, that this is openness and conscientiousness. It's it's basically how open versus how conscientious you are. Yeah, and there's a really good point that comes out. One of the practical barriers to understanding yourself, and this is covered in the book, is you can have this aspirational idea of some other way of being. So either in the case of you where you just say, hang on, I like numbers, I must fit the stereotype of being slightly geeky. Okay, that's one way to miss. You can kind of fail to recognise how complex humans are, and the fact is you can be attracted to chemistry and numbers, but me mostly creative. That's that's fine. That's a an avatar. Mm. But the second way is you can go, God, well, really, I am perceiving people who are super organized or super conscientious to be successful, and therefore I need to fit myself into that box. And referencing the self-help books, that's broadly speaking what they're doing. I don't mean that pejoratively, but what they're basically doing is saying, this is kind of the correct method of being, which is the equivalent of you going, or me going, God, that person over there who looks super successful that is who I should be. But the should gets in the way of the self-awareness. Anyone with access to Google knows there's a million ways to be a success, whatever that means to you. And I think to the degree to which someone has an aspirational idea of what they should be, that's distinct from how they actually are. It's just a recipe for not quite understanding yourself. Exactly. It goes back to that classic thing in the book where we talk about, like, you don't have to wake up at 4am. You'll find so many successful people who don't do that stuff doesn't mean that stuff isn't useful you have to find what works for you there's this whole set of research that's um relatively recent it's not even that recent anymore about chronotypes like some people are just wired to be morning people some people are wired to just work at night some people are super creative and productive at 1am and some people it's the whole 7am start working you know so you just have to find what works for you and i think that's a huge thing and we we sort of go oh yeah yeah but are we actually trying things out are we actually reflecting on it and this is what a coach has been so valuable for me for i've just come back a couple of weeks ago from dubai from a, the first holiday abroad in like over two years because we had the book launch before then that we were kind of getting ready for and then covid happened like a month and a half after we launched the unfair advantage and i come back and i'm thinking okay what's next you know i'm much higher up on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs now I mean, I reached that point when my first business was making a passive income, etc. It's like, okay, so what am I doing this for? Well, I want the creative expression. I know I have an unfair advantage of being able to create content and I enjoy it and it adds value to people. And I feel like it's almost like a gift that I don't want to squander. And it's like, okay, but what works for me to be creative every day? And how can I set up my environment to do that? Yeah, and that's part two of The Unfair Advantage, the book on self-awareness. The advantage of being self-aware is that you get to see where your talents lie. Now, in your case, your talents basically, at this point, quite obviously lie in creating content and articulating ideas and thinking conceptually. So the more we can have Hassan doing that thing, everything in that circle, the better. Yeah. And the more time you spend outside there, the less efficient, the less fulfilling. Yeah. And this is where the concept of self-awareness and the concept of the unfair advantage overlap so brilliantly. Once you have a little bit of self-awareness, it's exactly where you need to go specialise. And I think that point is missed quite often. I mean, if you look at people who are excellent at what they do, they're very rarely excellent at more than just that. You occasionally bump into polymaths, right? But for the most part, Steve Jobs wasn't brilliant at computers. He was great at design and ideas. And if you had him build a computer, it wouldn't have worked. 
if you got Mark Zuckerberg to run Amazon, it wouldn't work. You know, people's skill sets really are quite specific and you want to rise through hierarchies and you sort of have to pick the most specific hierarchy you can that's the most aligned to you and your skill sets yeah. and start operating there. And here's the paradox is don't come to a conclusion so quickly about what yours is. Especially good to spend your 20s doing this, I would say, at least. I mean, continue doing it as well. But, you know, it's a good time in your life to just try out different things and see what you enjoy doing. I wish I'd done that more. And I did do that quite a bit. But I wish I'd done it more. And that's one piece of advice I'd give to anybody trying to figure out what their career is or trying to figure out if they want to start a business, etc. Is do it. Try a job and then quit it if you don't like it. Go do something else. Nothing's, <laughs> nothing is set in stone. Nothing's forever. You could always switch around. And nowadays, a career for life just isn't a thing as much as it was before. So it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, I'll speak here as a representative, a mouthpiece of Gen Z on the cusp, millennial, 24 years old. When I hear someone say, who's slightly further up the mountain, if you'll excuse me saying, something like, well, you know, go figure it out. Try things. Gary Vee says that a lot too. Go try things. Taste everything. The initial internal response is, yeah, mate, but easier said than done. Because the psychology of self-discovery is difficult. It requires taking risks. It requires appearing as a failure. You inevitably look around and see all your mates in jobs that are quote-unquote successful so the very obvious question is, how do you overcome just some of the top items on the menu of self-doubts that make it difficult to try stuff? Interesting. Yeah, no, this is good. So is there something that you're thinking of trying, but you don't want to try? Is there a more specific example, either you or somebody else or anything? I'll take myself as an example. I did an undergraduate degree in Edinburgh, where I read philosophy, and then did something of a panic master's. <laughs> I think everyone's basically familiar with the Panic Masters. It's, fuck, what happens now? Time to enter the real world. <laughs> oh, wait, let's, let's, let's give it a year. <laughs> but let's give it a year, so we won't quite do it. So I did that at Imperial College Business School, and there it was a little bit of a moment, because it's basically finishing a school for Goldman Sachs, right? Right. That's the, that's the only way I can put it. And everyone's lovely, but everyone's about to be running the world quite quickly. And I kind of had this sense that that wasn't for me. I've got silly hair and an earring and Goldman Sachs probably wasn't my route. But it wasn't obvious what I did want to do. And the idea of starting a business producing podcasts and having conversations took me a year to get my head round. And there was a year of delay and a year of I'm not sure and maybe I should try these jobs. And in that situation, my specific concerns were basically as follows. Number one, it seems massively competitive and really hard. And if I try something and it doesn't succeed, disaster. There's some inbuilt, like, that's not just, oh, cool, like, we'll try again. No, no, no. There's some internal psychological consequence that's making that a difficult thing. Thing number two, will I look a bit crap to all my friends if I try something and it doesn't work? You know, if you're sort of vaguely middle class, and I'm probably more than vaguely middle class, you kind of have this thing of, like, your siblings all go to university and good unis, you kind of do the same Everyone kind of does well. There isn't so much, like, failure in the room. And lastly, well, I, you know, I'm interested in at some point, not yet per se, but at some point making some money. How am I justifying taking a route that seems very abstract to doing so? So those are your top three concerns. Yeah, and I think, Ash and I love to say this, which is that entrepreneurship, particularly when you're young and don't have dependents, and I mean, I started off living at my parents' house as well for years, 
and it's become normal now. The generation above me, they were like leaving home at 18 years old, literally getting kicked out. And I'm just like, what, really? <laughs> but the point is, if you have that unfair advantage of that financial cushion of like not having really urgent financial responsibilities, then the risk really isn't that high. Because it feels like you're falling behind because people are getting, you know, they're doing a year at Goldman Sachs and doing a year at management consultancy companies or McKinsey or whatever it is, right? But actually, the progression that they have at those kinds of jobs are actually much slower than you think. Like, particularly with entrepreneurship, like, the progression is insane. It's like nothing for a while, and then it's crazy. As long as you, you're keeping an eye open and trying to find where the market demand is, where you're making clients happy... It's really not objectively as much of a risk as you think. Yeah, and there's a point to be made here about unfair advantages. If you are in a position where the walls aren't going to crash in financially and you can take a year or a couple of years to try something, it's almost ludicrous not to because it is an unfair, it is an unearned or unfair advantage that just stands you instead. Yeah, it's really it's just a, pr a privilege, isn't it? I was so lucky to be able to have that, to be able to live in London, but rent-free. <laughs> to live at parents house <laughs> like it's great so that sort of thing is incredible and also quite a low a relatively low income you can start to save up a lot of money and especially with the business that hopefully the income grows at a much faster rate but i guess i'm seeing it in terms of entrepreneurship and try things out and that's always great and even if you're a student if you were able to do i wasn't the type that was able to do something like that on the side but if you are the type that can go for it because there isn't that much to lose but then also, career-wise, you could just try a career and just see how it feels and just be like, ah, oh, okay, this is how it feels to work in an office. This is how it feels to work in that kind of job, that kind of firm. Yeah, there's possibly not enough of a culture of experimentation. I think this is the problem with a culture that sells, or at least traditionally has sold. School, uni, job, marriage, kids, death. We don't know that it's not linear. Like, I think I grew up thinking it was linear. Everyone else grows up thinking it's linear. And then the idea of diverging off that path oof good yeah. luck to you pal yeah particularly from very traditional backgrounds like if you're brought up thinking that's the track to life sometimes there's a freedom that comes from like i don't know not going to university or not having such high expectations or something like that again going back to for people who are older than me here in the uk an entrepreneur was sort of like a word for a failure basically it was like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, yeah, it's like a Dell boy, <laughs> only calls on horses kind of sick. It's, it's that sort of thing. It's like, yep, trying to get by. Because it's one of those words, a bit like the word coach. You know, nobody's regulating that. Anybody could say they're, a, they're an entrepreneur. Anybody could say they're a coach. Anybody could say that it's like nutritionist. Understanding the difference between a nutritionist and a dietitian. The dietitian is the one with the qualification. Nutritionist, it's not a regulated term. So it's, it's one of those, it's a low barrier to entry thing. And now it's got all quite sexy. Like... It's like maths, right? Maths never used to be sexy or cool. But now it's like, oh, like, code chic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it used to be called IT, and it was the least cool thing in the world. <laughs> now it's called tech, and now it's like, whoa, really cool. Software. So, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So experimentation, I think, is a big piece of it. But also, there needs to be some kind of feedback loop, and that's something that I feel like I was missing, and the coach helped. But I think journaling could also fill that role if you don't have the unfair advantage of money to invest in a coach. Well, it raises a really good question. Say I'm listening and I'm thinking, God, I'd love to leverage my unfair advantages. I just don't really have a clue of what they are. And a coach is out of the question. How am I practically going to build that level of self-awareness? Yeah, so it's, it's really key to start having some kind of reflective habit or just asking for feedback. Understanding from people that you've lived with, that you've worked with, that you've traveled with, 
what am I like? Like, what am I good at? What do people come to me for help with something on? These are really important questions to ask when trying to figure out what you want to do. We kind of put things in categories like this is starting a business, this is getting a job, this is it's like almost completely different things. But really, it's ultimately all about adding value. What you want to do is add value in a way you're just naturally a bit better at. And I think that just makes sense. So whether you do that as a job, whether you do that as a contractor, whether you do that as a freelancer, whether you do that as a, a business person, you know, you can have a kind of remote virtual business where you work with people remotely or you set up a traditional business and you hire people here and you have them on payroll and you get an office. Yeah. And people understand this in other contexts, like in sports, if you're playing football and you have someone really short and really quick, everyone kind of understands that they live on the wing. No one would say, go play centre-back. Like, well, just make use of what you're good at. Exactly. And we understand that in a sporting context. But it's sometimes, I think, harder because we are attached to ideas of, well, I can infinitely improve in anything. And, I mean, I guess the response, right, is even if that were to be true, save yourself the effort and do something that you're good at initially, you enjoy, you're fulfilled by. And in working out how to get there, you probably are, as you say, asking the question, where do I naturally add the most value? Where does my life demonstrate people come to me? And I'll go back to something else, which is what are you naturally drawn towards doing? And I struggled with this. I didn't know what I was naturally drawn towards doing because I didn't think of it as a proper job. I didn't think of like learning about new ideas, articulating them, synthesizing them is a job. It just didn't hit me as if I could do that as if for a living. But yeah, what I want to touch on is if you're not sure what you're good at, just see what you're drawn towards. And sometimes you're not even that good at it at first. And that's okay. You don't expect to be amazing at the beginning. That's fine. But if you become obsessive about getting better at it for some reason, that's a good sign that that's the right thing for you to do. So the way I talk about it in the book is if the, the sorting hat in Harry Potter, where it says to Harry, uh, Slytherin at first, in his head, he's like, Gryffindor, Gryffindor. He really wants to be in Gryffindor. And that goes, all right then. And I always think of that moment. I, had, I included that in the book because that's kind of how I think of it. It's like, if you want something badly enough, as long as it's within the realms of possibilities, having that growth mindset and thinking, okay, or the reality growth mindset and thinking, okay, if I really give this a shot, let me give it a try and see where it goes because I'm really into this and I'm obsessive enough about it to read much more than the average person. So here's the thing, people think to be an expert or something, you need to, I don't know, have a master's degree or a PhD on it. When reality, if you just read about it much more than the average person, then the average person can come to you for advice on it. It's that simple. So if you're really into cryptocurrencies and you've been reading a lot about Bitcoin, trust me, the average person hasn't. So therefore you become an expert. You might not be the top expert in the field. That's okay. If you can articulate it in a good way, if you have people that trust you and want to invest a portion of their money into something risky but could work out well and is future-proofed and they're in their, I don't know, 40s and 50s and they're not into that, you could be the one to tell them about it. Well, I mean, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed is king, right? Like, you don't need to have total certainty. You need to have more certainty than everybody else in the room and therefore you're providing value. And this is something that I want to pick up on. Because I think quite often, just because what we see on Instagram and online are the highest quality productions of things, it's quite easy to be binary and say, that's value or there's no such thing as value. And I think people find it difficult to start quite often because they fail to recognize that they can add value on the margins to the degree that they can to the right customer at the right price point and therefore don't want to get started whereas in reality there's a whole bunch of people who would be happy to pay some amount of money for some part of their service absolutely that was my whole thing with my first business it was like i took this online course and it was like okay here are some ideas for you to start an online business that you can then systemize and create passive income from number one web design i'm like 
Web design? Seriously? So this is 10 years ago, but even then, <laughs> the internet wasn't anywhere near new. There were so many web design agencies and companies, and you think, well, clearly there's enough people doing web design. Every company's got a website. Why would there need to be another one? You know, it's like that whole idea of like, this isn't a new idea. This isn't something completely fresh and original and inventive. And I don't know anything about it yet, but it's totally fine. Because actually, the gap in the markets are people knowing somebody they can trust to handle it for them. Like a business owner going, okay, I'm going to trust you to handle this for me. And then this whole idea, the whole concept of it was like, you don't actually need to learn the thing. You just need to hire people within the expertise that needs to be done and project manage it. Yeah, this is such a misconception, though, that if you're not providing the best thing on the market, you have nothing to provide. I wish someone shook me 18 months ago and said, it's totally not true. And more than not being true, in order to be getting to the high production propositions you're comparing yourself against you, you necessarily have to go through the stages of being a bit crap comparatively, but nonetheless providing real value to real people. It's, it's an inevitable part of the process, not something that's impossible to ever overcome. And the fact that you care about quality means you're going to keep going at it until it's like good enough for the client to be happy and good enough for you to be quite pleased with, you know? Yeah, that's, that's the other irony, right? The anxiety around, I don't want to produce something that's rubbish. If you're having that concern, you're fine. <laughs> Go kick off. Yeah, yeah, you'll probably be all right. You know, like most people listening to this will be more the perfectionist side, like me. But there is the minority of people. And yeah, you know what? This isn't discussed enough. And I think there are people out there who will just keep hammering at something and not getting better at it. And the quality doesn't increase. That's rarer, much rarer, but it does exist. In a way, like the pendulum might have swung too far if you listen to a lot of self-improvement advice, right? If you do, they're telling you things like it's all about quantity, not quality. Just get the things out there and the quality will take care of itself. Exactly. And there's a missing premise there. Because when people hear that, they can often hear, okay, so I'll just keep on producing it. And that's the end of the story. But they're missing a step, which is the reason you produce it is to be sensitive to feedback to improve. Yeah, it goes back to feedback loops and iterations and stuff like that. You have to. It's a very unsexy thing to say, though, right? Better to say a single a week. I know someone who's putting out a single a week. And the degree to which they're getting better is the exact degree to which they're taking on feedback. If they were taking on 10% less feedback, they'd be getting better at 10% less quickly. Now, I'm being slightly tongue-in-cheek with that, but I just want to highlight the point. Yes, yeah. there is a balance here. And obviously, there are some feedbacks that you're just not at the skill level yet to hit the quality that you want. And there's that gap, you know, there's that famous gap where if you're a connoisseur or a consumer of a certain type of creative thing, a book, comedy, whatever it is, you are going to be consuming the very best content that's been honed for years and decades and hundreds of thousands of hours, tens of thousands of hours. You're just starting out. So there's going to be a gap, and that's okay. <laughs> you know what someone should go and do, I'm being totally serious about this, is go and find Joe Rogan's first podcast. Go put it next to Taylor Swift's first recording. Go put it next to... I mean it. Yeah. Go collect all the people we all think of as yeah, producing the highest quality stuff and see their shit high school poetry. Do you know MKBHD, the tech YouTuber? No. This guy is like a huge YouTuber. Everyone loves his stuff. It's so slick. It's so beautiful. There's a video of him uploading his first video when he was like 11 years old or something. And it's hilarious. It's so... It's, it's hilarious in the best way, in the sense of like, it's so earnest it's so, by today's standards, obviously, he was a kid. He, it's, it's rubbish. <laughs> but it's so interesting how he stuck with it. 
and he's he's just done it and he's gotten so much better so for anybody else out there along the same themes look up mkphd i'll check out joe rogan's first podcast as well it's probably like just him hanging out and talking about mma and it's bizarre man it's like yeah yeah it's bizarre it's like it looks like it's from the 1990s (laughs) even though it's like 2000 and whatever it's super low quality They're, they're dicking around like three and a half hours with like filters for the screen and like there's like fake snow none of the tech works they're not talking about anything yeah it's they're they're mates right so it's in their own language no one can piece it apart (laughs) and there's just a wider point here too is you know i don't go to the gym now the reason i don't go to the gym is because the benefit isn't worth the pain to me the interesting point is that i have no more pain in the gym than anyone else who goes it's the same pain it's a ball ache to get there the weights are difficult it hurts Now, the people that stick around with it and it's their thing, the benefit is big enough that the pain is worth it. So when you're having a conversation as we are about self-awareness, we have to make this point. Like, where are you happy to eat shit? Because you're going to have to eat shit in whatever you do. Everything's difficult. Yeah, that's perfect. Because do you know why I'm saying that's perfect? I read Atomic Habits when it first came out, which is one of my favorite books. It's it's just brilliant. What I love about it is James Clear is not necessarily breaking new grounds and coming up with something completely new. He is a brilliant synthesis and a brilliant communicator. So he synthesizes things that are already out there. He even references The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. He references like all these other previous experiments about building habits, etc. He was saying, whatever you do, there's going to be a certain amount of suffering. <laughs> Where can you tolerate the suffering more than others? You don't like suffering through the gym. I'm the same with cardio. I just want to blow my brains out. It's so boring. I can't do that. And that's despite the fact it's the exact same amount of suffering for you as it is Mo Farah. Like, you know, the the suffering is the same. The difference is how aligned it is with your goals, your values, what's meaningful. And honestly, like, the best example I have for this is I'm a weirdo who jumps on trains and buses to watch lower league football around the country. And (laughs) I last year in December or the year before sat 14 hour return trip on a tuesday to go to accrington up near preston to watch wimbledon lose on a tuesday night in the cold i'm happy to go put up with the seven hours each way and it's cold and because it's meaningful to me but if you said to go do that to watch harlequins i don't know a rugby team i would laugh at you i would say no way the suffering is identical the question is what's most meaningful so you've got to ask yourself in this conversation about self-awareness where specifically where in your life do you demonstrate have you demonstrated being happy to run into difficulty that others aren't happy to run into and that's not because suffering is brilliant and motivation is everything but it's because it's indicative of what actually is meaningful to you even the thing that you love most there are parts of it when it's not working and when you're just struggling through it it can be quite suffering in that in those moments right when things go wrong things but we go back to this whole idea of like everything is a mental model like i touched on this in the book this whole idea of like you spoke about like the motivational youtube videos that you used to watch when you were younger hard work is everything right that's the mental model and that's actually quite a useful mental model when you just want yourself to get up and start working it has its flaws massive flaws which obviously we discuss in the book but it's just a model to use and think of them as tools these are tools in the toolbox so another tool is to think of everything as like what's fun where can i have fun it's actually fun this is why i do it this is the only reason i do it is because it's fun now which one's the truth is it suffering or is it fun it's both it has moments of this it has moments of that it's what do you focus on our brains are quite interesting if you start telling yourself something is something it won't fully change it but you'll skew more towards that If you've ever been dragged to a festival that you didn't want to go to by your friends and then 
it's not your type of music, you don't want to be there, but it is for them, and then it starts raining. It's wild to see how everyone reacts. The rain is the same for everyone, but they all of a sudden go sliding around, how fun is this, how interesting, etc, etc. You, though, because you're not fussed and it's not interesting to you, sit there and suffer it. What is the same rain is perceived as fun in the one instance and is perceived as suffering in the next, because it's meaningful and it's aligned with you. So that's a high-quality question to ask. Where is it fun? And where do you perceive challenges as exciting, right? Like, if you asked me to design a website, I would struggle when I hit the first obstacle. I'd go, Jesus, this is exhausting. Whereas if you say, Jamie, age 16, playing football manager, this thing isn't working, I go, good. What this reminds me of is when I was younger and the Pokemon craze was really big. We used to memorize every single Pokemon by number. Know their names, know their weaknesses, their strengths. Well, the same with like, football fans who, who know every single player or collecting football stickers or something. Like, that's a lot of knowledge. And, and you can have a kid who's, like, really not doing well academically, but his memory for, like, stats when it comes to baseball, when it comes to football, or it comes to Pokemon is off the charts. It's insane. It's like a savant genius when it comes to it. Yeah, I dropped out of mainstream education the same year that I remembered. I, as a party trick, could tell you every score who scored and how the goals were scored for the 2006-07 season for Man United. I dropped out of mainstream education that year. For a year, I went to a special school. Right. Okay. But you knew all those facts. And obviously, a lot of schooling is fact recall at that kind of age. Yeah, it was, it was exactly about the unfair advantage. Like, the things that were interesting to me naturally were football and stats. And also, you know, I was playing chess tournaments and all the rest. All while not being able to hold a pen or remember anything to do with English or maths. Yeah, absolutely. You just have to find what your strength is. Hence why right now, so based on all this self-awareness and insight, I'm looking to hire my first in-person hire for the unfair advantage. I need my right-hand person. And really what that is, is an organiser. Because Ash is an ultra-creative, I'm a creative so we need somebody to help organize us and get us on track and keep the operations of the business flowing, keep everything on track so that I can focus on my unfair advantages, which is content marketing and the products are content. They can be coaching one-to-one -one or group coaching or they're like lessons or workshops or something like that. That's what I need to double down on. And that's why I'm looking for somebody who wakes up in the morning and wants to make lists and wants to make schedules and wants to keep things on track and keep the train running <laughs> on time, you know? I was about to say, if you wake up in the morning and you see lists and your unfair advantage is in around providing structure and providing order and keeping hyper-creatives being the other wing of the birds of what the hyper-creatives do, then probably get in touch with Hassan yesterday. Yeah, get in touch any way you want. You know, by the time this podcast goes up, we'll have a page with the job description. And it's really exciting because it's starting off as an executive assistant, but it's kind of an operations manager as well. And it can grow into something that as we build the company up, it can become like a basically a COO or a director of operations a year down the line, let's say. So get in touch, even if you don't have any experience, but you think you fit in that role, if you're a fast learner, even if you could just show me in your uni work how well organized you are, and you just love it. You have to love it because I want you to enjoy the job. This is what we want to hire, somebody whose unfair advantage is doing this. Yeah, exactly. You want to hire round holes for round holes. Yeah. And square pegs for square pegs. <laughs> With that ass, that's a great time to stop. Thank you for taking me through self-awareness. It's always a pleasure to jump into the themes of the book. And please, if that is you and you're listening to this, go to the link that'll be in the description and go get in touch with us.
definitely. I look forward to getting applications and maybe working with somebody, building out the company, creating more content like this, having more podcasts out. So yeah, man, this has been fun. Awesome. Guys, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. So thank you for listening to the Unfair Advantage podcast. We're available on the podcast app of your choice, as well as on YouTube as a video podcast. For more information on how to find your unfair advantage, visit us at theunfairacademy.com.